Hi, good morning everyone, uh, the service team here and also everybody uh, watching us uh, online. Everybody likes to win. Young children race up the stairs so that they can beat those on the escalators. People walking towards a queue speed up when they see others approaching so that they can get in line ahead of them. When taking turns to play games or sports, we hawk our turn a bit too long when we're enjoying success. But we step down and let others play when we prove to be embarrassing. If we can't win it for ourselves, at least we must be supporting a winning team. We pray to God for the success of our favourite teams, especially when a difficult or decisive game is coming up. Things get a bit complicated when your pastor is praying for the opposite team, because you know he never walks alone. Our passage from First uh, Samuel chapter 17 is an account of David's victory over Goliath. Since our reading is only part of the story, allow me to give you a brief summary of this biblical event. It was a time when the Philistines had once again invaded Israel. Saul gathered the Israelites and led them out to defend their nation. They were probably in a stalemate because neither of them had the high ground. For this reason, the Philistines sent out their champion, Goliath. This is called champion warfare, a type of battle in which the outcome of the conflict is determined by a single combat. Usually, the best soldier is sent out to fight from each side. In the face of Goliath, Saul and the Israelites were dismayed and greatly afraid. Nobody dared to answer the challenge. Forty days later, David was sent by his worried father to the Israelite camp to check on his brothers. When David arrived and found his brothers, he saw Goliath and heard the challenge. Then he went around asking about the reward in his attempt to nudge one of the men to take up the challenge. But his brother chided him, thinking that David only wanted to see someone get beaten up. In the end, David was convinced that he had to be the one to fight Goliath, for the men were too disheartened to do so. And so, when he was taken to see Saul, David volunteered himself. The rest of the story was read to us. This biblical event strikes a chord with our human desire to win. People have drawn lessons from this event concerning how to win, how to be successful in sports, business, and life. Unfortunately, they often major on the minor and miss the true moral of the story. Today, we're going to explore two popular interpretations of this event and why they are problematic before looking at a profound truth about victory in life. The first popular interpretation we're going to look at is this. Underdogs can overcome the odds to win. Now, one of the charms of our passage is the way the author so skillfully stretched the differences between David and Goliath. Goliath is a near-impossible enemy, while David appears to stand no chance of winning at all. The full description of Goliath is found in the earlier half of chapter 17. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. 
The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron, and his shoe-bearer went before him. Translating this to a metric system that we're familiar with, it means that Goliath was 2.97 metres tall, just 3 cm short of 3 metres. His coat of mail weighed about 57 kilograms, and his spear was more than 7. Now, are we to believe that such a giant human being exists? Well, the tallest NBA player in history, and there were two, they were 2.31 cm tall. Uh, meters tall. Seems a far cry from three meters, but it makes Goliath much more believable. And what if I tell you that the tallest man in recorded history was 2.72 meters tall? Got a show proof for this. This is Robert Watlow, born in 1918. His great size was due to abnormally high levels of human growth hormone. Due to his size, he also had great physical strength. And for comparison, this is him standing with his father, who is about 1.8 metres. Robert continued to grow taller even after puberty. He might have reached uh, 3 metres if he had not died at 22 years old. All the same, his existence proves that Goliath is entirely possible. Now we are curious to know David's height. Well, David is over 5 metres tall. Oh, sorry, wrong David. Uh, Michelangelo's David in Florence is five meters. But we don't know the height of the real David when he fought Goliath. In fact, we know close to nothing about his biometrics. We only know from the words of Saul that David was a young man and from Goliath that he was little more than a boy. Thus, David was likely a teenager in puberty. Not a boy, not yet a man. And he wasn't strong. When Saul gave David his armor, helmet, and sword, David was unable to walk in them. Uh, that's the original Hebrew. He couldn't walk in them. So instead of these battle gear, he stuck to his everyday carry, a staff, a sling, and a bag of stones. Clearly, David was inferior to Goliath in terms of physical prowess and weaponry. To make matters worse, David also lacked the battle experience and fearsome reputation of Goliath. Goliath was a warrior from youth, and the Israelites were intimidated by the mere sight of him. On the other hand, David was still a youth. Someone used AI software to create a photograph of Michelangelo's David. This image fits the description of him in verse 42. Ruddy and handsome in appearance. If we are to believe David looks something like this, how threatening can he be? Oh, you're so scary because you're so handsome. All things considered, David was an unworthy opponent in every way, which is why Goliath despised him. The drastic differences between David and Goliath are what make David's victory so attractive and inspirational. The average person with a decent sense of self-awareness knows that they're not the strongest in their game or the most innovative in their industry, nor the most resourceful person in life. However, if it's possible for someone like David to defeat Goliath, then there's a chance that I can also overcome my fiercest enemy. Everyone likes to win. And when we're not powerful enough, we wish that we were like David. So we make the Bible says that underdogs 
can overcome the odds to win. And we go on to analyze what David did, his self-belief, his past training, his battle strategy, and so on, in hope that we can imitate his success. However, this is not the moral of the story. The problem with this popular interpretation is this. The battle and the victory do not belong to David. David said himself that it was God's battle and God's victory. In verse 45, David said to Goliath, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. David identifies himself as a representative of the Lord Almighty. He is a servant belonging to God. And he continues in verses 46 to 47. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the, of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. The battle belongs to the Lord, not to David. God's divine action is emphasized here through repetition. The Lord will deliver, the Lord saves, and he will give. Nothing is credited to David, nor the Israelites. The Lord saves not with sword and spear. David and Israel were simply on the receiving end of God's actions. If we really wanted to say, they were merely instruments to carry out God's will. To reinforce the focus on God, the chapter includes another dialogue between Saul and David, where David also pointed to God. In verse 37, And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Here again, we see although David is the one fighting lions and bears, he takes no credit for himself. David acknowledges that it is the Lord himself who rescued him. God is the one who gave David victory. Therefore, if we simply focus on the person of David, we would have missed the point. Our passage is fundamentally a testimony about what God has done for his people. If 1 Samuel 17 is not a story about underdogs or giant-killing heroes, then are we right to say that it is a story about God giving victory to his people? In other words, God helps us to defeat our enemies. This interpretation looks promising, especially when we take into account what David said. When David came to the battlefield and saw Goliath, David said to the man who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? The phrase, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God is repeated again in verse 36. What this means is, challenging God's people is equivalent to challenging God himself. Insulting the servant is as good as insulting the master. 
Given the eventual defeat of the Philistines, it is logical to conclude that no one who taunts God's people gets away with it because God retaliates for the sake of his name. God will defeat those who dare lay a finger on those who belong to him. God gives victory to his people. If God always defeats the enemies of his people, then we would expect Israel to win with or without David. How is it then that they have failed to repel the Philistines and were stuck in a deadlock? How is it that Goliath had jeered at them for 40 days and 40 nights? Wasn't Saul God's chosen one? Why hasn't God given him the victory? Saul didn't, uh, God didn't give Saul and Israel the victory even though they were his people. And our own personal experiences also testify to us that we don't always win in life just because we're Christians. In our competition and games, we win some, we lose some. In our business ventures and investments, sometimes we make profits, other times we incur losses. What then is the moral of the story? May I suggest to you that the moral of the story is this. God gives victory to those who do his will. We can arrive at this point if we examine the heart behind David's actions. First of all, what was his motive for fighting lions and bears? Verse 34 to 35 records, But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Now note that David didn't go around picking fights with wild animals just to prove that he's strong. He fought lions and bears because he was protecting his father's flock. Protecting. It was only when the sheep were snatched away by ravenous lions or hungry bears that David fought them. He didn't run away and leave the sheep. He risked his own life to save the flock. Similarly, David didn't volunteer to fight Goliath to prove that he was the best soldier or the smartest guy in Israel or to get the reward. David took his life in his hand in order to protect God's people. If Israel lost the war, they would have to become subjects of the Philistines and serve them as slaves. David volunteered himself, laid down his life, so that he may protect his people from this ill fate. You must be wondering now, how is laying down his life to protect his father's flock and God's people equivalent to doing the will of God? Well, Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And again, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. God wills for us to love one another in the same way Christ loved us, by sacrificing himself on the cross. Therefore, laying down our lives is doing the will of God. 
In light of the commandment, we understand that God gave victory to David because David did the will of God. He loved his fellow men by laying down his life to protect them. God gives victory to love. This is my punchy title for today's sermon. However, since punchy titles tend to be oversimplifications, I must add quickly that this love which leads to victory needs to be grounded in faith and obedience to God. For otherwise, one can say that Goliath should win too, because he also laid down his life for his countrymen, did he not? But as it is, God rejected Goliath because his actions are counted as sin. Article 13 of our 39 Articles of Religion explains this. Works done before the grace of Christ and the inspiration of his Spirit are not pleasant to God, for as much as they spring not of faith in Jesus Christ. For that they are not done as God had willed and commanded them to be done, we doubt not, but they have the nature of sin. Goliath's self-sacrifice is sinful because he does not believe in God and he was not obeying the will of God when he fought for his people. What about Saul and the Israelites? Were they not defending their nation, engaging with the Philistines every day? Were they not doing the will of God? Truly, none of the Israelites were doing the will of God. We know from verse 24 that all the Israelites, when they saw Goliath, fled from him and were very much afraid. They ran away. In comparison, David in verse 48 ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. The Israelites avoided Goliath to save their lives while David threw his away to save others. Furthermore, when David went around asking, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine in his attempt to encourage someone to take up the challenge, none of them responded. They cared more for their lives than the lives of others. In fact, even the reward, the promise of power, royal marriage and tax exemptions could not tempt them to fight. When push comes to shove, everyone held on to their own lives in selfish self-preservation. It was as if the whole camp was thinking, it doesn't matter how long the war goes on, so long as I survive. Now turning to Saul, look at that king. Of all people, he was best match for Goliath. We recall that Saul stood head and shoulders above everybody else. And he had been a warrior since his youth, with much success. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, and wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly and saved Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. If Israel had to name a champion, it is none other than Saul. But Saul did not lay down his life for his people. He too ran away. Only David laid down his life for them, and God gave him the victory. On the surface, our passage is about the war between Israel and Philistia and the battle between a youth and a giant. Underlying all of that, 
was really a spiritual war against sin and a battle against disobedience. In this sense, we are all engaged in the same war, in constant battle to do the will of God, to love one another and lay our lives down. The lions, bears and giants in our lives are called selfishness, self-centeredness and self-preservation. As we continue in this pandemic, our fight against self becomes more noticeable. In principle, everyone agrees that when we receive notification from Ministry of Health, we should go for the swab test even though it was not compulsory. However, rumours of discomfort or memories of our last swab may discourage us from going and going again. Our self tells us, I don't want to do it because I feel uncomfortable. Of course, now we can't run away because uh, swabbing has been made mandatory. With regards to the vaccinations, doubts about its efficacy, reports of harmful side effects and news of vaccine-related deaths may lead us to delay getting our jabs. Our self tells us, let others go first and see what happens to them. I will go when it's safe for me. Our doubts and fears are all normal and understandable since we are sin- sinful human beings. Everyone, including myself, struggle with doing God's will. When I was writing this sermon, the new precautionary measures for religious activities were released. If our parish wants to bring back more than 50 people for worship services, we will need to do pre-event testing. This includes staff and volunteers with extended interaction with worshippers during the service, which means I need to get swapped every week. Because the rest of the staff are vaccinated, by the way. Yeah, so I'm the only one. So I have gone for two swap tests before, and I didn't like it. Uh, somebody gave a very apt description. It feels like water in your nose. Uh, but then I, I would describe it as choking on pepper in your nose. So... You can imagine, after reading the guidelines, I was in disbelief and I panicked for half a day. The situation is still very volatile and Pastor will probably share with us how and when we will resume our physical services. However, we may not be able to avoid pre-event testing forever. When the time comes, will you and I be willing to lay down our lives and endure the discomfort for the love of God and the church? Will we be willing to subject ourselves to pre-event testing so that we can come back to serve God and the church? Or are we going to be selfish and leave the job to those who are already fully vaccinated? Brothers and sisters, let us not run away from loving God and each other. Instead, let us turn away from selfishness, self-centeredness and self-preservation. Lay down your lives for one another in love as God has commanded us. If you have possible risk of exposure, go for your swab tests, even if you have been vaccinated, to protect those around you. Get your jabs as soon as possible if your health permits to safeguard the welfare of our nation. And we were very encouraged to know that most of our members who are above 40 years old are already vaccinated. That's well done. And when the time comes, 
for pre-event testing. <sighs> Let's face it together and not run away. So that we can all return to church to serve and worship the Lord with the community. And the Word of God reassures us that the Lord gives victory to those who do His will. We will trust in Him. Let us pray. Lord God, we trust that you are protecting us. We trust that you will deliver us from discomfort, from harm, and indeed, you have already delivered us from death. For in Jesus Christ, you laid down your life on us, for us on the cross, and won for us eternal life. And now, since we already have the ultimate victory, embolden your servants to lay down our lives to do your will, to protect each other. Help us to declare in the face of sin, fear and physical death that we are the children of the living God and we are not afraid. Amen.